A word of caution. This episode features descriptions of violence that may be difficult for some. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. A father is senselessly murdered at his home one evening and his two sons go missing. While it doesn't take long for investigators to zero in on a pair of suspects in the murder, it will be years before the whereabouts of the boys is unveiled. A 20-year-old vivacious young woman sets off one morning in 1982 with a list of errands, but only makes it to one. When she blows off plans to go shopping with her mother and sister, they know immediately that something is wrong. It's been 38 years, and there has still been no sign of her. Both of these crimes took place in Wilkes County in North Carolina, and they've made an impact on a community where people once felt so safe. We also have an update about a missing persons case we featured from South Carolina in a previous episode. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. First, I'd like to talk about Gavin and Gary Sidden Jr., two young brothers who went missing on July 21, 1982, from the community of Trap Hill in North Carolina. On that evening, the boy's father, Gary Patrick Sidden, a local store owner, was shot twice with a shotgun outside of their mobile home. His two sons, Gavin, who was 10 years old, and Gary Jr., who was 15, were nowhere to be found after the shooting. Investigators found a pair of orthopedic shoes belonging to Gary Jr. about a half mile from the crime scene. The boy needed the shoes to keep his hip in place after an accident he'd been in a few years earlier. The two people suspected in Gary Sr.'s murder, Tony Sidden, who from some reports was a cousin by marriage, and his stepson, Anthony Ray Blankenship, could not be found in the days following Gary Sr.'s death. No one knew where the boys had gone, but it didn't look good. From what I read in a 1984 newspaper article that ran in the Charlotte Observer, the murder occurred as part of a family feud. Tony's stepson, Anthony, who was 15 at the time, got into some sort of argument with Gavin and Gary Jr., and things escalated. Tony and Anthony left the area before they could be questioned about the murder or the whereabouts of the boys. After living in a few different states, they eventually turned themselves in and confessed to Gary Sidden's murder in September of 1983, but they still would not give any information about the whereabouts of the Sidden sons at that time. Tony Sidden and Anthony Blankenship went on trial and were both convicted in the murder and sentenced to life in prison. But still, the residents of Wilkes County wondered, where were the boys? Had they been murdered too? Could they still be alive? Finally, in September of 1991, residents in the Wilkes County community of Perlier watched as a man in shackles led investigators to an abandoned well. The man in shackles was Anthony Blankenship. He had finally decided to unburden himself and lead investigators to what was left of the two boys. 
He said his stepfather, Tony, had planned to rob Gary Sidden Sr. when he came back from working at a nightclub he owned. After parking their car on a logging road near the mobile home, they waited, armed with weapons. When Gary didn't return, they walked up to the trailer and looked inside a window, where they saw Gary asleep on the couch. Not long after, the two sons arrived home, and they were forced into the mobile home with their father at gunpoint. After leading Gary Sr. and his two sons outside, Tony Sidden wrestled over the shotgun he was carrying with Gary. He then shot Gary in the neck, stealing his wallet and the $300 in it. Anthony said they then forced the two boys in the trunk of their car, and Anthony thought they were going to leave them in the woods somewhere until he and his stepfather could escape. He thought wrong. The two men drove for a bit before stopping the car on a dark country road. Tony ordered the two boys outside of the car, executed them, and then drove away. He and Anthony hid out in Spring Lake near Fayetteville for a few days. They came back, and upon Tony's request, Anthony helped him retrieve the bodies of Gavin and Gary Jr., taking them to an abandoned well on a piece of property his family had once lived on. They covered the bodies with lime and a few logs before leaving the state. Anthony admitted he was armed when the two boys were killed, but decided there was not much he could do at that point to save their lives. Anthony Blankenship received two consecutive life in prison terms for the murders of the two boys. Tony Sidden was convicted and sentenced to death, although he has filed a number of appeals over the years and remains on death row. In a July 18, 2011 article in the journal Patriot, a North Carolina Supreme Court judge was quoted as saying, We can only imagine the terror the two boys felt as they awaited their fate. The torture endured by these two children removes any doubt that the sentence of death in this case is proportionate when compared to other capital cases. Next, I'd like to talk about a young woman named Angela Hamby, who went missing from Wilkesboro on October 29, 1982. By all accounts, Angela was a homebody. She had graduated from West Wilkes High School in 1980 and was living at home with her parents while working at a job in data processing at the local NCNB bank. Angela was also enrolled at Wilkes Community College with the hopes of eventually transferring to Appalachian State University. On the day she went missing, Angela had errands planned for the morning, and then she and her mother and sister were going to drive to nearby Elkin to do some shopping. She left her home around 9.30 a.m. On her list of things to do was get gas for her car that was almost empty, make a car payment for her 1980 Mazda RX-7, and make a deposit for her mother at the bank, where she also worked. She would then pick up her sister Cheryl, who lived in town, so they could all enjoy the day shopping together. But around 11.45 a.m., Cheryl called their mother, Shirley. Angela had never arrived to pick her up. Shirley told Charlotte Observer reporter John York that she then called the bank and found that Angela had never made it there either. She drove downtown to see if she could see any sign of her daughter or her car, but found nothing. Shirley's husband Jerry had gone on a hunting trip to South Carolina, and she wanted to call him then and there, but made herself wait until she had more information about what may have happened to Angela. After waiting until the next day, Friday, October 30th, Shirley Hamby called the police. 
Around 1 a.m. on that Saturday morning, the Wilkesboro police found Angela's beloved silver Mazda RX-7 parked behind the Tasty Freeze restaurant in town, near the garbage dumpsters. The car was unlocked. Inside, police found her purse and driver's license. Missing was the money she had been carrying with her and her car keys. A witness later told police they had seen Angela driving her car in the area of that location on the morning she went missing, around 11.30 a.m. She was reportedly with a man with long blonde hair and appeared to be talking to him. Angela's parents knew she wouldn't have just walked away from her car. Where would she have gone? They printed up missing persons flyers and began distributing them in the area and surrounding states. They scraped together money from a loan to offer a $10,000 reward, and the state of North Carolina kicked in an additional $5,000. I found an article that ran on April 10, 1987, that mentioned investigators had suspected two South Carolina brothers, Michael Ryan Torrance and Thomas John Torrance, of possibly being involved with Angela's disappearance. Here's a little backstory on the Torrance brothers. It's pretty violent. In early February of 1987, a woman named Donna Torrance, who was 19, was working as a stripper at a club in the Columbia, South Carolina area. She was married to Michael Ryan Torrance, and after she told him and his brother Thomas about two men she had met at the club, they concocted a murderous scheme. Donna arranged to meet up with the two men, who were engineers staying at a local motel in Columbia while on business. She then asked one of the men, 31-year-old Charles Bush, to drive her home. After they arrived at her house, she invited him inside, where Michael and Thomas ambushed Charles and beat and choked him to death. Then they went back to the motel, got into the room using the key Charles had on him, and murdered his co-worker Dennis Lawless. The motive for these murders appeared to be robbery. About a month later, Michael Torrance murdered a 20-year-old prostitute named Cynthia Williams in Charleston, South Carolina. They had been romantically involved and he allegedly shot her during an argument. When the Torrance brothers were arrested at their home in Lexington, South Carolina, investigators found a newspaper clipping about Angela Hamby's disappearance in an old family album. They wondered if the two men had been involved in Angela's disappearance, but eventually they determined both brothers were in jail on October 29, 1982, when Angela mysteriously vanished. Michael Torrance was eventually convicted of his crimes and was executed in South Carolina in 1986. His brother is serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. When Angela Hamby went missing, she was 5 feet 4 inches tall and weighed about 108 pounds. She was wearing a cream-colored v-neck sweater under a pale purple sweater, blue jeans, socks, sandals, a diamond and sapphire ring, and a gold atta bead necklace. She had blonde hair and blue-green eyes, and also went by the name Angie. Anyone with information on this case should contact the Wilkes County Sheriff's Department at 336-838 9111. While we're discussing Wilkes County, I want to bring up another missing person from that area, but in this case, the missing person is a suspected murderer. 
We covered the case of Sherry Hart and the man accused of pushing her off a cliff, Richard Baer, in Episode 12, North Carolina Cases Featured on Unsolved Mysteries. Here's a clip about the case. I'd like to talk about Sherry Hart next. Her case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries on December 1, 1995. Sherry was a recently divorced 24-year-old young mother who had moved back to live with her parents in West Jefferson, North Carolina, when she went missing after an evening out in January of 1984. For months, her family wondered what had happened to her, and then her body was found on December 10, 1984, at the base of a cliff near an area called Jumpin' Off Rock. Investigators received some tips about Sherry's murder after a $5,000 reward was publicized. They discovered two local men named Richard Baer and Jeffrey Burgess had met up with Sherry the night she went missing and talked her into cruising around town with them. At some point during the drive, Richard made a sexual advance toward Sherry that she rebuffed. Jeffrey told investigators that Richard struck Sherry on the back of the head with a pistol and had Jeffrey drive them to the nearby Jumpin' Off Rock. Richard then dragged Sherry out of the car and pushed her off the cliff, where her body was found all those months later. Jeffrey said Richard threatened to kill him and his family if he told anyone. Both men were arrested, but before they could stand trial, Richard Baer simply walked out of the Wilkes County Jail when the jailer wasn't paying attention. That was on July 17, 1985. Because Jeffrey was supposed to testify against Richard at the trial, he was released from jail and never served time for his role in Sherry's murder. He passed away in 2012 after serving time in and out of jail for various drug charges. To this day, Richard Baer has never been captured. But investigators say Baer's sister romanced a guard at the Wilkes County Detention Center and convinced him to look the other way while Richard Baer escaped. That was June 30, 1985, more than 30 years ago, and Richard Baer is still on the run. No one has ever served time for Sherry's murder. The most fascinating thing about this case are the rumors that have persisted over the years that Richard has frequented his hometown, even dressing up in disguise. According to an article published in the Wilkes Journal Patriot, investigators have received tips that Richard had dyed his hair blonde or red, sometimes dresses as a woman, and may have a tattoo of a panther on his right forearm. At one point, they suspected a man living in Caldwell County of being Richard, but could never substantiate that. They've gone so far as to stake out funerals of Richard's family members to see if he shows up in disguise, but so far have uncovered nothing. Richard Lynn Bayer is still considered wanted by the FBI, and anyone with information on his whereabouts are asked to contact their local FBI office. Before we continue, Let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. If you're anything like me, you may be looking for a way to level up your writing. Or perhaps you have an idea for a blog, but don't know where to start. WOW Women on Writing has an amazing list of online classes designed to help writers in all stages of their careers. Some, like the submissions consultation offered by Chelsea Clammer, allow you to submit up to 4,500 words for only $25. In return, Chelsea offers an assessment of your writing, suggestions on where to submit the piece, and manuscript formatting to each journal's guidelines. There's also a beginner blogging bundle that is a self-guided course lasting four weeks. In the course, you'll generate ideas for your blog, plan content, design images, and make a plan for posting. 
you can begin this course once you've paid the fee of $80. Starting in February, you can take classes on prepping to write nonfiction for children and young adults, taught by Sue Bradford Edwards, and learn how you can make money ghostwriting from Karen Siafi. Learn more about these courses and more by visiting wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. And now, let's get back to the show. And finally, I wanted to provide an update on a case we featured on Episode 14, South Carolina Cases Featured on Unsolved Mysteries, The Disappearance of a Young Girl Named Jessica Gutierrez. Here's a clip from that episode. Next up is The Disappearance of Jessica Gutierrez from Lexington, South Carolina. Her story was featured on Unsolved Mysteries on January 24, 1990. On June 6, 1986, four-year-old Jessica was sharing a bed with her older sister, who was six at the time, in the family's mobile home. When Jessica's mother, Deborah, woke up the next morning, she went into the girls' room to wake them up. She found her older daughter, school papers littered all over the floor, and no Jessica. The front door was also open, and the family's dog, who normally slept outside, was inside the house. Curtains had also been ripped off one of the windows. When Deborah questioned Becky, she told her mother that a man with a magic hat and a beard had taken Jessica out of the bed sometime during the night. She had been too afraid to call out for help when it happened and eventually fell back asleep. Jessica's father was separated from Deborah and he lived on the West Coast at the time, which the police confirmed. One suspect in Jessica's disappearance was an ex-boyfriend of Deborah Gutierrez. She had broken things off with him because of possessive behavior and alcohol abuse just days before Jessica vanished in the night. Police questioned him, but he was never charged. According to an article I found in the state newspaper, a family acquaintance stole a van in Lexington County, drove it to North Carolina, and sexually assaulted a woman there. He was charged in the crime and later sent to prison. While this man was in prison, he allegedly told his cellmate that he had kidnapped a little girl in Lexington County while wearing what he called a tall cowboy hat. He told the cellmate he buried the little girl in a landfill in Lexington County, prompting a search of a landfill near the Gutierrez home. Nothing was ever found. The cellmate offered to testify against this family acquaintance in exchange for immunity, but the deal was denied. In the article I mentioned above, a representative for the Lexington County Sheriff's Department said they had reviewed all the evidence supplied by the informant, but didn't feel they had sufficient enough evidence to proceed with the case. The only evidence investigators found at the Gutierrez home following the kidnapping was a set of fingerprints found on a windowsill in the living room, which is apparently where the intruder entered the home. These fingerprints were matched to the family acquaintance who was convicted of sexually assaulting the woman in North Carolina. Deborah Gutierrez has told reporters in the past that she believes her ex-boyfriend and the family acquaintance actually knew each other and may have worked together to abduct Jessica. Jessica Suzanne Gutierrez would now be 38 years old. Her mother is still holding out hope that she is alive. She had brown hair and brown eyes at the time of her disappearance and a small scar on her upper forehead and a small brown birthmark on her right buttock. Anyone with information involving this case should contact the Lexington County Sheriff's Office at 803-359-8230.
Earlier this month, police in North Carolina announced they'd arrested a man named Thomas Eric McDowell, age 61, at his home about 20 miles north of Raleigh. He was charged with kidnapping, murder, and burglary in the case of Jessica Gutierrez. Authorities have said he was living in Lexington at the time the little girl went missing in June 1986. According to the Lexington County Sheriff, Jay Coon, this past September, the police in Lexington announced they were revisiting this case, interviewing more than 125 people and reviewing about 3,500 case files. In an interview with the state newspaper in South Carolina published on January 8th, Jessica's mother, Deborah, said she had long suspected Thomas McDowell of being involved. When he was convicted of sexual assault in 1987, his fingerprints taken matched a set of prints lifted from a window at the Gutierrez home after Jessica disappeared. Jessica's mom said Thomas was a distant acquaintance of the family because his uncle had married Deborah's cousin. So far, no other details have been released about the crime. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.